Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, this is Alice. We want to thank all of our supporters. And we want to let you know that our book reading is coming up soon. But because of some technical difficulties, that has been delayed. And and this episode has some sound quality problems. But it will be fixed. And next time we will finish about the gulags and the whole KGB system and discussing more important issues. But this time... But this time we want to do something a little more lighthearted than usual, because talking about gulags is some heavy stuff. So we hope you enjoy this episode, and remember that you can always become a patron, even for $1. We also have t-shirts, and we're on YouTube, where we're uploading all episodes, so it's easier for you to share them. And now, enjoy the episode. comrades and welcome to the eastern border once again and like i promised you last show here we have uh, our glorious comrades from the dead ideas podcast uh, the great podcast that looks at dead ideas the things that people once thought through but no longer anyway we are here to discuss well basically what you thought about soviet union and i have heard of this mysterious red scare which you laugh over vodka sometimes it's one of these Lighthearted episodes, don't worry, guys. Uh, hopefully, but we will tread dark waters pretty soon, I presume. <laughs> that uh, happens as usual. So, before I give the word to my colleagues over here on the other side of Skype, I wanted to just you know start this out with a question: Have you heard of a book written in 1997 in Russia by one of the ex-KGB guys? called The Geopolitical Situation in the World, which was basically meant as a textbook for for people holding political office and for people like having power in Russia today. It's a very interesting book. It, it has like some snippets of it have recently been translated into English and uh, people uh, all around the internet have been like very worried about this book. Have you heard of it? Is that the Alexander Dukin? Yep. Yeah, I, I've heard of it. Oh, I, this is new to me. Well, basically, that's a book that basically states that uh, for Russia to achieve its long-term goals, 
It must create a strong Germany allied with France. It must get UK outside of uh, Europe. It must separate UK from Europe. It must uh, ensure that right-wing nationalism rises in the United States of America. Uh, to, uh, and also, it says that Ukraine uh, kind of uh, should not exist because it's not a special country. It seeks to make Lithuania, Latvia, and Poland a special status states, essentially a puppet state of Russia, and Estonia should be in the same level a puppet state of Germany. Uh, Finland also should not exist, it should be split between Sweden and Russia in the long run. But you know, UK passed Brexit, you elected Donald Trump, we have the European Union under straight French and German control. It's getting kind of scary and I'm just um, having my little dark, dark pleasures here when people send me messages about this book. It's like, is it true? And I'm like, well, yes it is, it was published in 1987. Fun stuff, isn't it? I don't know, because uh, this is why I think our the, the subject that we're going to look at today is very important about all this Red Scare, because I, I do believe that maybe Russia might be a bit more, you know, calm if it has friendly relationships with the United States. Maybe it won't. Who knows? But uh, the thing is, I'm here to discuss the period of your, your time when you were really afraid of Russia and they wanted, wanted to get you into this frightened mode. So, so, just before you spew out your opinions like a never-ending avalanche of vodka, uh, please, please, introduce yourself to the comrades over here in the frozen parts of this. And also, you, you, you are now checked on the list of toughest podcasters out there, because you are... Uh, w welcome to the motherland, uh, comrades! <laughs> well, with that kind of endorsement, yeah, I would say so. <laughs> And be very wary of what you say. My agents report that you have left your fridge open. Because <laughs> you know, I'll, you have line of sight and outside of line of sight. There are, thin, there are thickly packed KGB agents observing every, every move of yours. Well, I think, I don't know about Nick, but I think Anna's okay. But Nick might be. So. What, about being monitored by the FSB? I think you're the agent. Oh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, it's a long and deep game. I elected Donald Trump and I married you. And... <laughs> oh, I knew it was too good to be yeah. true. Yeah. Hey, everybody, I'm BT Newberg. Uh, you can just call me Brandon, though. And? Anna, hi. And Nick? Yeah. And, yeah, on behalf of the American voting populace, apparently right now we are doing our damnedest to make this Mr. Dugan's vision come true. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no, it's okay. It's okay, Agent 1 and Agent 2 and Agent uh, Shoe. <laughs> so it's fine. No, but seriously speaking, uh, basically, I don't know, you know... I'm, I'm 27 right now, I was born in 1989, and uh, most of my studies come from what I've, what I've gathered from my parents, but I don't know, you, you must have lived to, through the end of this. I wanted to ask you how, how did this collapse of the Soviet Union kind of happen in America? How, how was it reported, and like, were you surprised that it collapsed, or were you expecting it to last longer or something? Yeah, well, in terms of timeline, we're pretty young for really the Red Scare. I mean, we weren't we were alive during the collapse time, right? I mean, yeah, I remember yeah. the Berlin Wall coming down, etc. Yeah. Like we were one of really the first young. Things I remember it being big news stuff that I yeah. was just barely old enough to pay attention to, and yeah, everyone seemed pretty surprised. My mother actually woke me and my brother up. I was like seven. She dragged us downstairs. It was either November 9th or tenth, and they were showing footage of people climbing up on the wall and cheering, and she was just crying and crying and crying, and it was. Really weird. 
it was the first, you know, really <laughs> cognizant memory I had of the whole situation. I don't know, did, did you, like, really in America actually thought that we all would be very supportive of the Soviet Union? Did you, like, you know, think, like, they show in the movies at the time? And the ones I've watched, and I watched Red Dawn and Rocky IV, and they made me facepalm insanely. But, but I don't know, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Did the people of this, this era in America really thought that we were all very loyal subjects to the Soviet state and firmly believed in what they told us? Well, there was so. definitely a lot of that in the pop culture in the 80s. Hmm. Yeah, for sure in the pop culture. I don't... I like mean, Red Dawn and yeah, yeah, just even the way Star Trek played out a bunch of times. I mean, and personally, I was too young at the time. I would have been in elementary school, uh, which is like primary school for people in Europe. Um, I would have been really young and wouldn't really have had the cognitive capacity to really do that kind of perspective taking of what other people were thinking in Russia and that there would be different opinions. But I did talk to my dad uh, before this to kind of get his stories. He was born in 54, so he lived through a lot of the Cold War. And uh, he, did, he did mention in particular remembering thinking that it's probably the same for people over in Russia, for the common people. They're probably just like us. Uh, but for, I guess, the people in power, it would be, they were the ones. So they would be, he would be opposed. Yeah, it's actually kind of, kind of true, if you think about it, because I'm not opposed to my, you know, I'm, I'm a Latvian, but I have nothing against Russians. I mean, they're great, they're great folks all around. It's just that, uh, you know, Putin has blacklisted me, so I, uh, the feeling's mutual, so to speak. <laughs> oh, yeah, and if you have anything you want to say to Mr. Putin, uh, you, you can do it now, because, you know, he's listening. <laughs> well, he can't. He's an agent. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> well, Congratulations I, on the official blacklist, I guess. Yes. I was considering uh, appearing on this podcast with no shirt riding a horse, but I, I, <laughs> I, I thought the Putin double thing might be overdone by now. <laughs> Because over over here we really, and I've mentioned this on uh, Lester Bonaparte at one point, we really took you all seriously at one, at, at one point, because you know, as we as we get our independence, we thought, you know, America is the best, you know, for righteousness and goodness, and everyone must be very satisfied about their government, and everyone's happy, and Reagan is the greatest president of all time, obviously, because, you know, to, to, and to us, it, he still is, honestly. Reagan is viewed very, very, very positively here in Latvia because we don't know a shit about what he did in like the in like over there in your end. We just like he he had a hard stance against the Soviet Union. He must be a great guy. We hate Harry Truman and the to the same extent. By the way, it's it's complicated, you know. It's it's but, complicated yeah. here too. Uh, there are a lot of people who still really look back to Reagan as a great president, but it's very much divided along party lines. Yeah, it's so a pretty sharp ideological yeah, re divide. Republicans, which is the conservative party party over here, are often the ones that um, really hold up Reagan as an ideal. I don't know. I, my my advice to you guys just you know, learn to work together because I have seen so much hate on my Twitter account after Trump got elected. It was just crazy. I mean, you're, you're all the same people, at least to us, and especially, you know, the, those people who tell us, oh, my grand-grandfather, he was Russian, therefore I'm Russian too. No, you're not. You're an American. I'm sorry. 
Uh, so, you know, why don't you just all, like, be Americans and, you know, hope for the best or something? I don't know. I, I just wish you all had, like, peace and understanding. And maybe get some more parties, because your two-party thing is, uh, you know, not quite understood by everyone else. <laughs> All right. I completely agree. But yeah. Well, we are always looking for an excuse to party. It's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> you need an excuse? Ha! Weaklings! <laughs> no, but I just actually don't know. Um, how real did the threat of getting nuked seem to you when you were you was you were a child? Because I have a listener over here from Norway. He wrote to me and he said that he lived near the polar cycle next to the pol polar. Thing, uh, I English goodly, I'm sorry, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, basically he lived next to the border of Russia, and he like so he used to see these bright flashes just over the border, and, and he his mother was very very afraid that you know they might all die, and, and and that's why he listens to my show, and I have some listeners who actually were born in West Berlin in the American like contingent there, because and that, that's that's an extra honor to me when I when I speak to these veterans, because you know. Hearing veterans from all sides has really changed my worldview, especially when I did my Afghanistan War episode. I spoke with a lot of people who actually fought in these wars, and it's kind of kind of interesting because from our end, that war was one where no one wanted to be there, no one wanted to like kill small children and or all, all then die from them, and it all scarred a nation. And you know, we weren't that enthusiastic of, of throwing nukes at your place, but. I've heard a lot of these Doc and Cover stories. Did you experience any of this in, in your your time, or was it just something that your parents did? I mean, how real did the nuclear threat seem to you? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I would say it seemed a much more of a visceral thing in our parents' generation. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, my mother always told me stories as a kid that the two things she was afraid of as a very small child that her parents scared her with, like being scared of boogeyman or goblins or something, was Teenagers and communists. <laughs> what? Which, for context, there was that whole juvenile delinquency scare in the 50s. So Yeah, know, teenagers meant yeah. James Dean in a leather jacket and a switchblade riding around on a motorcycle, and communists <laughs> meant nuclear war and the end of the world. These were her two big fears as a five-year-old. And they yeah. were equivalents? Roughly, yeah. <laughs> talking, talking about teenagers, by the way, over here we have like band, rock music, uh, and, and a lot of American music. Um... And, and so we, we thought that might lead people to capitalistic ideas. And, oh, of you know, course, you gotta watch out for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but seriously, it's kind of it's kind of weird because you know when the, when I wasn't in Lesser Bonaparte, those guys made this music episode, and I was surprised to find out that in America the older generation from the fifties looked down on that sort of thing because they thought it would lead to socialism. Well, over here we thought it would lead to capitalism, and it was like from the decadent West. <laughs> still yeah. find books and bookstores here talking about how rock music leads straight to devil worship, too. Yeah. So, yeah. Devil worship, communism, teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> you can see how deep it goes. Fairly. Um, very deep. It's, 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 what, it's, it's what we all do, because, you know, um, obviously the fact that I have a Vampire the Masquerade rule book over there and somewhere between my Stalin books is uh, is something terrible. I, I, I don't know, this, this is called a relationship. Uh, how, how would you like to, like, and this is going into a political front, but hey, you know where you're coming Stop, from. Before you get onto that, oh. you had mentioned the duck and cover thing. Uh, can we talk a little bit more about that? Sure, go on! Hey, feel free! This is a free nation, obviously! <laughs> so, because both my dad and a co-worker of mine mentioned this and actually prepared uh, a little uh, a jingle on it. So this comes from a 1950s 
black and white cartoon shown to elementary school children of how to prepare for in the event of a nuclear strike. It's like, it's like kids facing immediate nuclear total annihilation. Do this. <laughs> Basically, yeah, 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 with the cartoon. But it, but it has this cute little turtle character in a jingle. So if you don't mind, I've got like 30 seconds of it. I don't know if it's going to come to come across well on Skype, but you can edit it out if it yeah. doesn't. So here we go. It's Tony Kent's screencast, so we can see the, the turtle too. I know, right? Here we go. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the the, the yeah. funny thing about that video, and this this was told to me by my coworker Kelly, who actually taught uh, Western European history, I think it was, and showed this video to her students and posed this question to them. So in the video, it shows students what to do if there's like the flash of a nuclear strike. They're supposed to quick get under their desks and cover their heads. Or if they're riding their bicycle, they're literally, it shows them jumping off of the bicycle and getting like next to the nearest hedge or something. The hedge is going to protect you. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh boy. So she asked her students, like, okay, this is a nuclear strike. Do you think this is going to, what is this going to do to protect you? And they're like, nothing. <laughs> and she's like, yeah. So why would you show this to the kids? And the answer that she posed was, it's about instilling a sense of control. Yeah, that's really yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. Yes. Like, this yeah. is survivable. It's not. I mean, it, it might protect you from a little bit of the debris if you're far, en far enough away from the blast just not to be vaporized. <laughs> but over here in Soviet Russia, we know the importance of good morale. <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> but it's kind of weird. Uh, also related to that, uh, where I grew up was uh, the state of North Dakota. We actually had an Air Force base uh, that had uh, basically Minuteman II missiles for, you know, intercontinental ballistic uh, missile reception. And there was a joke sort of going around that if we wanted to, we could probably successfully secede from the United States with that armament and no one would notice. Actually, they probably <laughs> yeah, wouldn't. What percentage of the nuclear <laughs> missiles are in Minot? It's... I think they took them mostly out. I think are it was you... Grand Forks, though. But Minot's still a big nuclear Sorry. This yeah, is well, either way, my tiny state trivia, was basically on the front line of interception. And Wait, which state are you again from? Don't worry, Americans haven't oh. heard of it either. Yeah, it's, it's true. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it, I get asked if I'm Canadian all the time. Well, Glenn's, well, Glenn, my colleague from Bonners, is from uh, West Virginia originally, now he lives in Illinois. And you might find it strange, but I have now learned all of your damn states. Well, there's too many. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's just, it's like all 47 of them. Yeah, yeah something yeah, like that. Like no, 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 three, three of them are commonwealths, you see. They're not technically states. So that's why you have 47 of them. Well, wait, we have 50 states. <laughs> What's a commonwealth besides no. Virginia? Okay, there's... Is it Delaware a commonwealth? Might be. As far as I have learned, you have 47 states and three commonwealths. You just commonly call them states. District of Columbia. You're schooling right? us here. No, that, that'd be a 51st. <laughs> but Virginia is technically the Commonwealth of Virginia. 
So there are probably two oh, others. Oh, so some they're of the, the states, same. some of the states are commonwealths. Right. We're not talking about like territories or yeah. non-voting kind of places. No, I no. think it's just something that right. is the word state. Uh, we are learning about America today. Thank yes, you. Yes, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> are you afraid <laughs> yet? <laughs> or rather, we're living up to the stereotype that everyone else knows more about America than Americans. Yeah. yeah. Especially geography. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's it's kind of, it gets kind of funnier because you know European Union has a place. European Union holds a quite a large amount of territory in South America. Seriously, because French, yeah, because French Guiana is a French state. It's as much a state as Bordeaux or Ile de Paris. They are a state. They're not an overseas territory. They're a state of France. So technically, and the, and they use euros in French Guiana over there in South America. It is fully incorporated, and that, that's uh, there's European Union in South America, and, some, and there's European Union in Africa because there are two Spanish cities in, in there. So you know, ge geopolitics is very very strange beast at the best of times. At the worst of times, when on my side of the planet decides that your side of the planet are capitalist evil bourgeoisie pigs and should be destroyed like the scum you are, uh, then uh, <laughs> it gets scary because. You know, I looked at this map of uh, you guys planning to launch those very minute men, minute men. I, I don't know how to pronounce this properly. Basically, I looked at the map on how the nuclear strikes were supposed to go on like Latvian territory, and yeah, there is a map of this. How Americans, you know, the exact plans on where you would land your nukes. It kind of leaves about three people and maybe a cow alive over here. And I'm not sure about the I'm not, I'm not sure about the three people because you know it's a count as like 28 nuclear strikes on my small land at the size of West Virginia with a population of two million. It's a bit of an overkill. But yeah, uh, when talking about these these rockets there, that was one of the reasons of the Cuban crisis actually because. Over, over here, we didn't have such efficient rockets to launch our nuclear strikes there. Because by this point, you should know that the Soviet space program was based on ICBMs, which could only hit space, so they were used to like hit space instead of you guys. Because we couldn't hit them. We had, we had medium, radius, uh, medium radius rockets, which then were placed in, in there. But yeah, the, the whole Khrushchev thing... It, it started with the stagnation started with us trying to you know put a small small impact in the world. When I say us, I mean the Soviet Union, obviously. But I don't know. Was the space race taken very seriously in America? I mean, did you see it as a way to gain more prestige? Because that's how it was seen here. Like you know, if the Soviets could get into space, they could kind of save some of the save save face essentially, m ensure that you know we had enough power to. Projected all over the world and we wanted to use it as a weapon. So I don't know. Did, did you really? My question here that is it was the space race mostly seen as a way of like exploration and showing the goals of what humans could do or did you kind of use it in a way of anti-Soviet propaganda just as we did in anti-American? Oh, I, I think it's definitely it was about a fear. I would say I'd say it was a strongly generational thing. I think for people of my grandparents' generation, it was a very strongly, you know, show the Soviets we have the willpower to do this. But for people, I think of, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I know sure. at least in the case of my parents, it was totally, oh my God, we're going into space. This is amazing. Look at the new frontiers of everything. And my dad was hugely into astronomy and still is. He's still really into it. And 
uh, has a you know telescope and writes up uh, weekly things for the local paper about astronomy and was just thrilled when we actually got to the moon. So, I mean, I'm guessing that it also depends on who your parents were. Oh, and, for sure. Yeah, you know, it's and, a totally, and, yeah and their politics. And, and their politics. But I think it kind of went in hand with a lot of the people who really strongly went into Star Trek here when it was coming out about the same time. It was all about, we made it to the stars, human, humanity's more or less united, we you know, don't have this antagonism and we're exploring versus we all died and blew each other up. And again, I'm getting this more from movies and history classes, but it seems like it was more of a prestige, to the extent it was a Cold War thing, it was more a prestige thing than a weaponizing thing. Huh. But there's yeah. just sort of a lot of embarrassment that we weren't the first people in space, despite being... Yeah, Sputnik got there first. Well, yeah. Okay. And therefore we damn well better get to the moon first, because... Oh, yeah? It was already egg on our face that we weren't the first people up there. Okay, well, yeah. this is really interesting, because that's that's the opposite narrative, as I got from really? my parents. Huh. Yeah, uh, which... Maybe has a lot to do with the different politics of different, parents. Yeah, yeah. different so, politics, different yeah. personalities and stuff. No, uh, my dad mentioned it as, I mean, obviously on the surface, it's about the amazing science part of it and exploration. But just beneath, it was more about, okay, the Russians, uh, the Soviet Union uh, put Sputnik in space. And even though all it could do was send out a little bleep, uh, the message that was heard <laughs> from that bleep in America was, uh, they could put a weapon in space. And so then we needed to do something uh, to you know, keep up with that. And so we decided, what's bigger than that? Let's go to the moon. And then my dad said, uh, the Russians must have been thinking, oh my God, the Americans can put a military base on the moon. So same thing on either side was the kind of perspective that he was taking on that. Well, we're going to go to Venus. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible idea. Yeah. Don't go to Venus. Actually, Zoritz had very serious plans about going to Venus. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was they badass. did, actually. It was totally yeah. badass. Yeah, uh, many more people would die in this. I, I hope you have heard my Space Race episode, because... Uh, Death is a nice partner here in the Soviet Union, you know, it allows you to escape things. And Acid rain mother. and atmospheric pressure, who cares? Yeah. I believe the Soviet Union sent the, uh, the, the unmanned probe yeah. to Venus. Yes, yes we did. Yeah, huh? that revealed yeah. to us that it was so hostile. On and the got surface. pictures before it melted, that was awesome. Yeah. That was totally <laughs> awesome. Mad props. Oh, really? Yeah, there's okay. pictures. There's pictures. We talked this up too along with the Commonwealths. Yeah. Yeah, because the Soviets. Uh, you do know that all of the Soviet space program was basically invented by a man who was in prison, prison right? Some war, war never changes. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm a huge Fallout fan. But I don't know anything about Star Trek at all. It, it never gained popularity in these parts. We are, yeah, even though we were, like, the Soviet Union had science fiction as its official genre, and I, I read a lot of Fred Bradbury when I was a kid, and the Zemo, and all these things, Star Trek is basically unknown here. We know Star Wars. We're not huge fans of that. We're much bigger fans of Lord of the Rings, because, you know, that also got fun and, of course, Conan the Barbarian, because we like our dark, we like our dark stuff. I mean, Witcher, Witcher see. Witcher series is like the national pride of Poland by this point, I think. But yeah, Star Trek was never our thing, and I tried to start in it. By this point, the old series are so old that I just can't watch them. Uh, well, the, <laughs> no, the thing about Star Trek, which came out in the 60s, right? Yeah, yeah. it was 69. The original Star Trek, it's in the 60s, uh, late 60s, and 
um, I think at the time it would have been seen as quite progressive that they had what seemed like mainly Americans on the, the deck, but also a Russian uh, on the, like the bridge where everybody was. Well, um, Chekhov, Chekhov was introduced later, I think, wasn't he? Like the second season or third? He was in the sure. original series, okay. though. Yeah, he yeah, was, he no, was he in was the original totally series. Original. But they also made cracks all the time about him in the show because he would always phrase everything like everything was invented by the Russians. <laughs> <laughs> and then everybody else would just kind of uh, shake their heads. <laughs> but that's the original stance here, by the way. If you read these Soviet textbooks, you will find that... Well, the Russians went out of their way to prove that really everything was invented by them. Like, the first light bulb we had, like, this other side, I forgot his name, I might, I might check it, but essentially, they, they went out of the way to prove that everything was basically Russian invented. That's a national sport of theirs, so to speak. So, kind of kind of weird how it matches out. But, I don't know, what, are you, like, afraid of today's Russia? What, what do you think about Putin? Well, just, I would say, for me, just in the last year, during this election cycle, is the most palpable uh, fear of Russian politics that I've experienced within my lifetime. Um, it's just been kind of played in a way to bring up fear, I think, in the most yeah. recent election cycle. It seems really heavy-handed in the media to me that mm. sort of something like a new yeah. Russophobia is just being yeah. kind of pushed as a narrative. So, for example, I believe uh, in one, one of Trump's speeches, or probably several of them, uh, he referred to not being able to keep up with Russian nuclear armaments. And I, to me, when I heard that, I thought, am I in the 80s again? And mm. it was a really weird kind of anachronistic feeling. But the other thing is there seems to be quite a bit of fairly good evidence now that uh, Russian, uh, Russian agencies or Russian hackers did tamper um, with the, uh, uh, the uh, what parts of the election was it? I think it was... It was, it was doing some tampering that favored Trump over Hillary. Well, yeah, even Zhilinovsky, the dude who openly states in the government that, you know, we must nuke uh, America all the time and, you know, do all these nasty things, he blatantly favored Trump, too, so, you know, it's just little, it's just a bit normal that we are quite wary about what's going what's to happen now. You know? On the other hand, you also had Trump basically sucking up to Putin a lot, basically saying, yeah, he was a great man and stuff. So I'm not really sure what the hell's going on at the moment. Well, he was writing a fine line, because he also said yeah. he never met Trump. Yeah. Right. So, so it's just And like, then everyone else in the Republican Party has exactly the opposite line, largely. So... Yeah, so. Hmm. <laughs> What's Kelvin Ball? Uh, it's a game where you keep on inventing the rules depending on what's going on at the moment. Oh. <laughs> it's from a comic a, strip from yeah, our a, childhood and yeah, American newspapers. You, it's it's named after a kid called Calvin who basically would yeah. just do a lot of weird inventive stuff. Oh, more things I don't know from your culture. <laughs> weird. What were like the biggest fears over there? I mean, uh, there there had been like uh, a lot of scare about Russian spies infiltrating a lot of places. Did you do you know anything about about that? Like your your fears of Russian spies and to what extent the people took them seriously? Except your special agent over there on the left. Obviously he knows, but he won't tell me. Personally, having grown up with pretty leftist parents, the narrative I got as a kid was that that was all overblown and made up. And what I found kind of surprising 
in retrospect, after Soviet archives were open and things, was how much that was actually wrong. And it was, and, and there fact, actually it was true. Yeah. Whoa. Hmm. Hmm. That Alger Hiss was probably legit, and so was Julian Rosenberg to an extent. And mm -hmm. Hmm. yeah, I don't think that was just dismissed as paranoid conspiracy theory stuff among the kinds of circles my family moved in at the time, and that was kind of actually not the case. Weird. Huh. Yeah. You know, they, they uh, basically the Soviets agreed to the, to the American embassy in Moscow only if they would build it. And when the Americans moved in, they found like 18 or 19 bugs in there, just for listening. But that was, that was the basic idea, and I think, I don't know, um, you might have some Russian agents in there, because it was a popular belief over here in the Soviet Union that, you know, you, you guys, the CIA had a lot more money, but KGB and GRU had way better agents. Like, more loyal, uh, like, more educated more trained, but you had way more money to just buy your stuff around the place. And, and over here we were kind of, you know, one of the basic ways to understand, like, it's kind of a joke now, but the Soviets had a lot of ways to kind of check on American spies. For example, the, if you were a tourist from the United States, because you, you would allow, you would be allowed in Soviet Union, because we wanted to appear as, as generous and nice and awesome as possible, you wouldn't be allowed to speak with the locals. If the locals spoke with you, that alone could be the grounds for arrest and, you know, interrogation by KGB. That's why you were just led around. It's like, I don't know, if you had watched some documentaries about North Korea, that, that's about the same level as the, these, these things operated. But the common joke is that American spies always squat in the wrong way, you know. Heels must touch the ground! Well, I, I actually have... <laughs> yes, I heard that, I heard that too. <laughs> I actually have uh, a related story to that, uh, if, you've, if we've got a few minutes to tell the story. Of course we do, man! Okay. okay, so my dad's a pilot, he's a crop duster, and so he knows a lot of other pilot friends, and uh, including some... Uh, who are from Russia, and one of them, a guy named Alex, I won't say his full name, but uh, he defected from Russia. He was a Red Air Force captain and a crop duster, meaning uh, someone who sprays the crops with pesticides and stuff, and managed to defect over to America. And my dad and him uh, got hooked up because he trained my dad in this uh, particular kind of dread. But anyway... The interesting relationship here is that once he was over in America, he stayed in touch with his father back in Russia and convinced his father to come over and visit him in America. And when the father came, he refused to believe his eyes of how much abundance uh, in the grocery stores and in the restaurants there were. He said, would you say lies, lies, lies. He thought that the town that he was being shown was basically like in that recent movie about North Korea, The Interview where it's just like all a sham town. So Potemkin Village, yeah, basically. Yeah, Potemkin yes, Village, yeah. exactly. Yeah, because that was the default default thing in, in the Soviet Union going on there. I mean, every every person ever in the Soviet era who got to spoke with American media and American people on TV, they were vetted, trained people. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, and all of that was a Potomkin village. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it, it wasn't until they allowed him to choose randomly any town in like the nearby area uh, out of like dozens of towns, which restaurant he wanted to go to. And he saw that it, that was the same way that he finally believed that uh, this wasn't just a sham put so, on by the American government. Is this Hector? Is this the town where your dad's? Yeah, was, no, from now was, and no, it might have been different towns. I'm not okay. sure what towns it was. Sorry, I'm just time. trying to imagine that particular area being considered the Potemkin Village in model <laughs> yeah. communities. The, the town that I'm from is very, very rural. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> Brandon's family comes from a very, very small town. Yeah, surrounded by corn. Yeah, <laughs> 1,100 people. Yeah. Well, it's, it is. It is kind of pretty small, though. But I don't know, these, these particular villages, um, I don't know, were there any, like, overt shows of, you know, intimidation towards the Soviets? Because I, I know that Khrushchev couldn't understand abstract art, so that's why he made the Soviet realism so popular. But CIA started funding the abstract art just to, you know, show the Soviets that oh, we were much more civilized than you were or something. Was there, was, was there something else? Actually, the Paris Review and a lot of the abstract expressionist Jackson Pollock and things were CIA-funded. CIA-funded? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Sort of on the same principle as the scientific atheism textbook. It's, look how much more culturally advanced we are, and uh, your artists and intellectuals can be free and not have to... Wow. Yeah, and the, the, that is also the reason why the Soviets were really, really, really... They, they took the World Chess Championships and who was the best in chess and the world very, very seriously. Because obviously the Soviet man is intellectually superior to the degraded the, the capitalist scumbags who can't even, you know, do anything. That actually jogged a memory about just, like, the, the whole, like, chess thing during the 80s. I mean, I was vaguely aware of my dad getting super into it and everybody suddenly caring about chess for a really intensive time of time and then forgetting about it all of a sudden. <laughs> it's like, 
Wow. I, I never really thought of it in terms of brinkmanship, but yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> also, like... even all your dad's stories about going on a cruise last year and finding other old retired men to play chess with and having his ass kicked, basically, by everyone who was from the Eastern Bloc. Yeah, they just annihilated. Well, of a Bulgarian who beat him every time, and he beat everyone else, basically, right? Yeah. The thing is, the chess was elevated to a major status over here. We have, like, you know... I don't know how it's like in America today, but we have these special, you know, uh, next to school you have an art school, you have a music school, you have a chess school, you have, like, your sports school, and it was widespread, because, you know, if you were, if you were this, uh, the smart, uh, smart, skinny kid, you'd go to, like, the chess school, uh, or to the art school or something. Everyone had a lot of things to do, and completely for free and government-funded, so that, you know, it was all done with the, with the single purpose only. We must win more battles in the Olympics, and we must beat Americans all the time. And it's kind of, uh, seriously, and, like, in, in the Stalin's era, for one, they had these uh, parachute schools. I mean, they were training kids, they were, they were training to get kids into parachuting, so that they could later easily, like, conscript them and use them as, you know, agents in the army, so that they know how to... Yeah, uh, parachuting was ginormous before the World War II. Yeah, I heard that, yeah. Don't you remember when we were listening to um we were listening to an audiobook of a Russian science fiction novel recently? Yeah, Night Watch. Oh, that's great. That's actually great, but that's a, that's a bit of a piece of Russian propaganda because it it, it it skewers things up a bit. But it's great. It's it's one of the best books. Uh, Parachuters Bar. Yeah, which a seemed parachuter kind bar. of like, weird what? that that was an existing <laughs> yeah. thing, but that's the interesting context. Yeah, it's like uh, oh, so that was a thing. I wonder if that would make sense. Really really? Yeah, parachuter bars. Parachuters, <laughs> <laughs> they have these base base jumping towers also all over the place. I mean, I remember climbing up one as a kid and was really scared of this. But parachuting was a thing, and. Uh, Physically and mentally training people to kill more Americans is also a thing, you know. Well, actual base jumping towers just all around. Yeah, well, what kids could go with their teachers and base jump? Wow. <laughs> wow. It was all. It was all just shown, you know, part of the physical education because you had to pass a physical education exam even in universities. You had to know how to give first aid and everything. But this base jumping was a part of it because you know, it's it's easier to teach like kids to be a parachute. If if we need to liberate yes uh, more countries, then the, and the, we have conscription going on. It's just easier that way, you know. The kids already know how to paradrop it. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of better. Than imagine just imagine just like you know your your Boy Scouts except with murder in it. Do you get a? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I don't know. All I had to do at Girl Scout camp was learn how to line dance. So I'd take parachuting and murder any day. <laughs> Well, okay, it was, it, was, it was less murder and more than, you know, how to spot American tanks by their, like, silhouettes in the distance so that other people can murder them. <laughs> we got all these, all these heroic studies. I don't know, uh, we had some, like, actually, you should check on Soviet science fiction movies, because we had a lot of them. We had The Kings of Zah, where the, it's a comedy movie, but we also had a movie where Americans send soldiers into, like, Americans send their tactical nuclear strikes and they then send their soldiers into West Germany together with the people who obviously oppose them to like test the effects and how could they advance and kill the Soviet Union, but the Soviets win in the end. Except that, of course, with the thing that Soviets actually did. But I don't know, did you kind of... Did you have any cartoons or movies showing how terribly evil the Soviets were when you were kids? Well, besides the ones that I've, I've seen, but, you know, I doubt anyone took Red Dawn very seriously. Even though, like, I'm going rings! Yeah, I well... Com I commented on the movie once and then... Um, 
within our lifetimes, probably it's more the kind that you're talking about. Yeah, it's like Red Rambo, and Rambo and, yeah, cheesy things. Karate Kid. Wasn't there a Karate Kid with a Soviet enemy? One of them. Rocky. There was the Rocky, maybe. I'm Russian boxer. Yeah. And there was that yeah. Superman where there was like a nuclear-powered Russian yeah. Superman. Where you had to fight or something? Yeah, there were lots of Russian stock villains, but it was pretty cartoony. Yeah. Going back to Star Trek, pretty much everyone universally acknowledged that Klingons were proxies for Russians. Yeah, that was pretty much a straight Uh, Very explicit. Uh, uh But they were, again, since it was kind of a self-consciously progressive show, they were militaristic and awful, but also kind of noble and admirable. And that became the case more and more as time went on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. It was, how do we understand our enemies, was a lot of it. Interesting enough, I'm talking about, like, superheroes. I've read the Red Dawn comics, like the Red Sun ones, when, the, when, when Superman arrives in the Soviet Union instead of the United States. And I found it to be mega hilarious. Because the first scene when he arrives, he's like, he appears to the, these random farmers in the field. Independent farmers, what?! There were no such thing, people. They had costs. Nobody actually worked with them. It's like, what? He appears in the field with these poor farmers. They have their own farm? In Soviet Union? Quarks were already exterminated by that point. What are you talking about? He, he would have arrived in a farm in Siberia when it's cold and all the owners have been sent to gulags and there are some KGB agents there. And they take him to interrogation immediately. <laughs> Wait, Christos, are you saying that our American comic books are historically inaccurate? I'm, I, I'm now having a traumatizing moment. I know. I don't know. This just kind of reminded me of reading Tintin in America, though. Oh God. Tintin comes to Chicago in the 1930s, immediately fights Al Capone, then drives an hour outside into the countryside and finds comically stereotyped Indians in headdresses shooting arrows at him. In rural Illinois in the 30s. So just being radically historically yeah. inaccurate. <laughs> Christos, I actually have a question for you, if it's all right. Yeah, sure. Uh, with a little bit of story for a lead up to the question. But you had mentioned the Olympics. And the Olympics, the, the time that the Olympics was in the Soviet Union, uh, brings up two vivid memories for me as a kid. The first one was my first crush. <laughs> because there was this Russian gymnast with these amazing eyelashes that I always remember. Uh, the second one is the most vivid memory that I actually have of any kind of Red Scare related thing was being told by my parents, and mind you, this is coming th- filtered through the mind of like an eight-year-old, so it's probably not what they really said, but being told by my parents that if you were born in Russia, they would force you into the Olympics. <laughs> but here in America, you have the choice. I think what they meant was like you would take some kind of an aptitude test, and based on that, you were sort of selected in a certain direction of where your education was going to go. But uh, that was that was kind of a very early um, uh, memory of mine of having a sense of like those people over there are really uh, different and scary and so my question to you is but kind what, of hot but, but also <laughs> kind of hot with amazing mascara right yes. <laughs> my question to you Christophs, is to what extent was that true that there was this um rigid selection of what occupation you're going to be funneled toward uh based on your early aptitudes See, and based on early attitudes, there actually was no funneling. You you had a lot of opportunities to go and study 
like anything uh, besides the school that you wanted. Like I mentioned, all these you know improvement schools. We still have music and art schools and sports schools here in Latvia. Like you know, specialized after hours education, which gives you a document. For example, if you finish this music high school, it's not a full high school dedicated to music. It's just that you do after school, and then you can get into like a music academy easier that way. But we had a lot of opportunities for people to go wherever they wanted, and a lot of like parents either forced you to go somewhere where they wanted, or just really wanted to study like be good at football, so you went to the like specialized sports school after this. But once you were in there, you were a part of the system, and obviously the Soviets like took the best. For example, we had this like all the sports were either uh, associated with an army or with like with a factory or something or or with a certain profession. So, for example, the best Moscow team at CSKA, Central Army Sports Club, they technically were all army officers, but they never saw the army. They were just there so that they they could pay for receive some salary. There were no professional athletes in the Soviet Union. They all were formally in the, either working in the factory or in on anywhere else. And of course, before those people who they had like the the government apparatus decided who could go to the Olympics, and of course they would force you if you were good at your field to compete in these international things. But they would vet you. They would threaten you and your family. And uh, I, I think I speak about this in my sports episode. For example, if you were an athlete in the Olympic Village, you couldn't walk around alone. Your family would be in, in threat. They were KGB agents with you at all times. You had to write reports to them. But yeah, you really had no choice. If you were good at something, the part, the, some nice people from the party would just come up and tell you,、uh, you know, you are going to represent the Soviet Union in the Olympics now. Why? Well, if you, why not? You get to go abroad. And if you if you refuse, and if you refuse, then you know you have all these nice benefits and all this nice salary and such a nice family that you have. It would be a shame if something happened to them. Siberia is large, you know, and you know, and、uh, like there are tales of people who refused to represent the the Soviet for the Olympics. They got the, they got put in like asylums for mentally ill people because obviously you have to be mentally ill to refuse such a great honor. That they would usually accept. We had our ways of、uh, say persuasion. What? We are the best country on the planet Earth. We're prosperous. What did you expect? Someone being happy here? Yeah. So this is this is kind of the most、uh, the biggest、uh, impression I have as an adult now, as realizing that all the stories that I was told as a kid, I just assumed were so exaggerated that I didn't really put any stock in them. But by listening to your show and hearing more of the pieces of evidence from my father and things like that, more and more I'm finding that it, there were a lot of them were more true than not true. Yeah, I've had a lot of that impression from independent research as an adult too. Things that just seem completely implausible and sort of politically propagandaish as a kid. Yeah, were not necessarily yeah just turned out to be propaganda and also factually based. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. See, that's that's the thing. It's kind of、uh, a lot of people today, even America, assume that you know Soviet Union and right now even Russia operates on the same logical levels、uh, such as you guys. For example, recently, and I'm going to touch this because I don't want to speak about this on my like final Gulag show. I had I spent a lot of time in Quora. There's this site where you can answer questions to people, right? I've answered a lot of them. And、uh, you know, I want to answer questions about the Soviet Union. One of them was like, "Name me the richest person in the Soviet Union, and what was their net net worth?" Now, to you guys, it might seem like you know a reasonable question. You expect you have an answer, but the Soviet person 
it made me like facepalm a lot because that question is about as logical as asking someone who is not on LSD how purple tastes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just insane. For for example, uh, people should read uh, the great like they're, they're, they had a period in the Soviet Union in the early in, like the early thirties which was called NEP. The new economical policy, which allowed limited capitalism, and during that time, a lot of great literature was written, such as Bulgakov's Master and Margarita, which you should all read. Uh, it's one of the greatest books written. And also, uh, there was these comic comedy short writers, Ilfan Petrov, and they wrote a book like The Golden Calf, I presume. Like how you call the kid from a cow, you know, something, something. But yeah, Golden Calf, yeah, and. Uh, it was a story about a very a Soviet guy exploited the system in this era, and he basically uh, creates a machine which powers water from one blast to another, and presents it as a major invention, and just, you know, scams money from the state. Now, he's put in the bind because he can't do anything with the money, because one, there's, like, very few things he can buy in the stores, and if he spends too much money, he gets, like, shot by the KGB. If anyone finds out he's been stealing the money, and basically he tells anyone he gets money and jewelry and everything, he gets shot by the KGB. If he stops scamming the money, then the KGB will find out that he gets shot by the KGB. So he just has to keep piling up the cash in his room, even though he's the richest person, so he can't do anything about it, but just just keep piling it up and guard it from anyone's eyes. And our main main story of the guy, main story of the, of the main hero of the story is the dude who tries to like get some money from him, and the guy just all too happy to just give it to him an insane amount because he's like, hey, you want to have my money? Great, have it. Because that's the main, that's the that's the main that's the main thing. You could have a lot of money, but you couldn't do a lot of it. it like moonshine, more worthy than money because there's very limited things you can buy from it. And also, this this question presumes that even though Stalin lived in a huge mansion, had like the best car, he has he had like his own Volga, his own limousine with two ton doors. Each, because they were like armored ones, they could uh, they could endure a direct blast from an anti-tank rocket. We've actually uh -huh. seen one of Stalin's cars. It's in a random museum in rural Illinois, where my sister lives. Yeah, and in it's... some strange person's collection. And the thing is, he didn't own any of that. Technically, it all belonged to the people. Stalin didn't use any money because you know Stalin just you know had to go to someone else. The great engineers of Soviet Union, please make me a mega car. Why you would you say no? There are the only documented case of Stalin actually caring about or using money was when he and his granddaughter walked around the park and the granddaughter wanted, you know, some some lemonade from the stand over there from the vending machine. So he had a bunch of five copay coins in his pocket for when he needed to use the vending machines but used by normal people, like the average Joe. Otherwise he wouldn't have to pay for that either, you know, but you have to like you can't you can't threaten uh, threaten the machine with who are the KGBs, you know. So the very so even though St Stalin and leaders after him had a very rich lifestyle, they didn't inherit their their buildings. They, they you couldn't pass it on. You couldn't sell it. You couldn't do anything at it because technically they didn't own anything at all. The, the very concept of and uh, um, but the other thing is that Stalin could have as much money as he wanted. He just had to ask people, you know. Bring me the bring me all the dollars that you can find in the Soviet Union. And then some. He had unlimited access to cash, not that he ever needed to use it, only to like bribe someone. So, at least some people would say no, he had a net worth, he had acquired all these riches, but he couldn't pass them on, he couldn't do anything with them, so... Uh, it's kind of very strange that, yeah, this question is like how purple tastes, because... 
Money can be made and it's worthless. It's just people in the top. Well, they... But why? Why would you use this American invented dollar system if you could just go and nuts? Would you say no to Tavari Stalin? Who would dare? So that, that's the things. There was an interesting situation and that kind of showed me. That's why I want to do the show because even though such such questions might seem logical to you guys, it was like completely crazy and like no one else like cared. Even in the later years, sure money could get you some favors in the black market, but then the guys in the black market could figure out what to do with it. But for the common person, if they would get too much of money, they would be like, okay, and what now? So I don't know. If do you have any other like questions of this sort which you would like to know about the Soviet Union as Americans about all this stuff? Which, I don't know, which, which you might be interested in? I don't know. Maybe someone else cares about this. Let's start with the agent in the, in the brown shirt here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm trying to think of questions. Fill your guts. Fill your guts. A lot of humming. Well, yeah. One thing I could say is that... So, when I talk to my dad about this, um, and, and when I think back of when I was told about communism as a child, especially, usually the conversation draws a very stark contrast between how it is in Russia, how it is in America, how it is in Russia, how it is in America. And whatever we're talking about to do with communism or Russia is also a lesson about why America is better. And it's not that I disagree with anything there, but it's just an interesting point that I think parent, people from our parents' generation have a much stronger sense of urgency about uh, showing why. I think when, when I interviewed my dad uh, about this to get in stuff material for this interview, um, before we talked about anything else, he wanted to make sure I understood his philosophy on communism. And so my question, I guess, to you would oh, be... Oh, give, give, give it my podcast, man. I love it. <laughs> oh, don't worry. I'll give it to him for sure. Um, so my question to you is, was it used the same way in the Soviet Union, where anything that uh, you talk about, when you talk about American capitalism, it's almost automatically used as a black and white direct contrast to uh, the Soviet system? Well, we haven't used political jokes in this episode, now have we? I think these explain the, the, the best. Basically, uh, Armenian radio gets asked, well, what are the differences between capitalism and, and communism? And Armenian radio answers, well, you see, you see, in capitalism, uh, man exploits his fellow man. In communism, it's the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a question, why were they always Armenian radio jokes? Because Armenian radio was like, you know, uh, it wasn't from Armenia, but it was like Radio Yerevan or Radio Armenia. It was called Armenian Radio Jokes or Radio Yerevan Jokes. It was just a popular kind of a comedic, comedic show in the Soviet Union aired from Moscow. And they did like, they didn't do actual political jokes, obviously. But, you know, people kind of ascribed all the jokes to them because it was a com comedy radio show, essentially. Because uh, Russians had a huge history of stand-up com comedians, comedy shows, and comedy movies to keep the morale high. Because, you know, well, when the people are laughing, they're not complaining. So that's, that's why so Russia is... Russia, besides America and the United Kingdom, is, I haven't heard, seen this phenomenon to be very popular anywhere else, is where the stand-up comedy as a genre is very popular still. 
So another interesting thing about this is it, it comes down to the war. My late grandmother, from my mother's side, she survived the war, the bombings and Stalin's oppressions, and you know, until the very end of her life, she used to stockpile things. You know, these there are these little plastic, you know, these little plastic boxes where, where margarine and or butter comes in. These she used to stockpile them because plastic was very valuable in the war, and she just thought, you know, never throw anything out if it can be used. She, we, we had to, like, in secret throw out a bunch of stuff so that we had uh, room in our cupboard. And that was the private thing, but everyone thought about America as some sort of wonderland. Well, not all, all people, but most people kind of thought it was, like, really something, something really great and amazing. But in the official propaganda, it was always, like, we were always chasing next to America, always comparing ourselves to the United States. That was, like, we must... You know, catch up to America and then overcome it. And it was always in comparison. It was just like you said, just on the other side. But the common people just made jokes about how silly and stupid all of this was. And especially about our economical situation and all of this. One of my favorite jokes is like, you know, Armenian radio gets a call from an American listener. And that listener says, well, you know, is it, is it true that, you know, the engineer, I'm thinking about emigrating there, but, you know, is it true that the average engineer for his salary, he can't lead a great life, and it's a very small salary and stuff like that, and, and then there's a five-minute silence. And then, and then Amina Ray answers, well, you know what? You lynch black people! I actually, I actually saw that. I saw that, um, the Wikipedia page about that expression. Yeah, because that's, because that's, that, that was used everywhere. That was the most common joke there, because this come up. That was it's amazing seeing it in independent verification. <laughs> I actually have a joke to share too along those lines. Again, something my dad told me. Uh, but it's re in regard to the space race, in reference to that. And the joke is that we Americans spent a million dollars to develop a pen to write in zero gravity, and the Russians used a pencil. See, the thing is, uh, our friends in the Rumor Flies podcast. Uh, from my darkness fellows made an episode of this. See, the thing is, you can't actually use a pencil in space. It would burn and stuff. So this... You can't do it, because... The Soviets actually bought the technology, acquired it from Americans. They bought NASA space pens for themselves on one of their voyages. Yep. Huh. Why okay. do you need a pen in space, though? Um, because they didn't have very... Could they didn't have computers or something? I don't know. But yeah, it was, it was a pop, it's a popular joke here. But yeah, it's, it's kind of not true because you really can't can't use pens for that. I mean, you can't use pencils in space. Oh, your your English words are so weird. Over here it's different. Over here it's pilspalva and zimol. It's completely two different words for you. It's pen and pencil. It it, it irritates me. What are they for? Pen and pencil. Zimolis is for pencil and Pilspalva is for pen. Pilspalva is like for literally filled up filled up feather is for the pen, the pen. And pencil is Zimolis basically a thing that you can draw with. Because Zimet is to draw. We have two different words for this. But yeah. Also, for what it's so, worth, there's the same generational stereotype in the wonderland of prosperous America from people around our grandparents' age or a little older who lived through the Depression, who yeah. also never threw anything away, famously, and their kids had to clean out their cupboards from all of their tiny little yeah, all boxes the and plastic bottles and useless knickknacks that, yeah. that could come all, in handy. Yeah, bolts and screws and straightened nails and things that they saved. 
So yeah, they thought they might need them. Someday. Everyone who lived through the 30s here, it was very much the same. So yeah. intergenerational, international trauma hoarding, I guess. <laughs> A different trauma, but the same behavior. Yeah. yeah. I guess so. Uh, but, yeah, Anne, do you have any, any questions or any comments whatsoever? I did just remember, actually, just, sorry, I know this is kind of out of sequence. All, all women over here in the Soviet Union are very strong and independent, so, so you know, you, you show those American oppressors, if they don't allow you to speak, you punch them. <laughs> I like how this is going. <laughs> oh, yes, I like how this is going. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, no, it's just, it's sort of a weird, just fractional surface memory. Uh, a bunch of my friends growing up were sort of... Uh, I don't want to say religious fundamentalists, but they were very... They were religious fundamentalists. Okay, fine, they were religious fundamentalists. Um, <laughs> They're just, nice people. You don't need to make it too much of a pejorative, but it is an accurate descriptor. Okay, well, there was this whole thing, the worst thing that was imaginable, and in, in so much as, uh, again, the subject of Red Scare ever came up organically as a kid, was that, you know, in communist Russia, you don't get to go to church and you'll be persecuted if you go to church, which was just, I think, the only part of, organ of of Red Scare that I actually encountered as a child. It was the worst thing imaginable for them that you didn't get to go to church or that you'd be persecuted for your beliefs if you had religious beliefs, or at least to the extent that they believed it. Well, you see, as I brought up my book earlier, which I applied to David, was called Scientific Atheism and was a mandatory thing in schools, it was completely true. Uh, you, you have people from the party, usually from the consum or from the party youth organization, and Sunday standing next to the church and, and taking notes on who went to church. And you could get in serious trouble for going to church. You could lose your job, you could be like publicly shamed in these so-called uh, people's trials. Also, our, our major orthodox church was turned into a pub and a art gallery and a planetarium. Its crosses were sawn off and, you know, it was used that way. And they also desecrated and just kind of uh, robbed the church of all of its, like, wealth and every, everything that could be sold for gold. Uh, they used it. Uh, they used church, especially Orthodox churches, propaganda during World War II. But after that, yeah, state atheism and actually heavy repercussions for you know celebrating Christmas, for example, was completely forbidden. And, and for going to church, it was completely true. That was one of the things that, even though they said that you know there is religious freedom, they expressed religious freedom as basically they had this state-sponsored uh, newspaper called Bezbozhny, basically the godless, which tried to extremely propaganda, propaganda this atheism thing, because uh, Lenin, and I'll come down from Lenin, Lenin believed that if you believed that you would have an afterlife, and you'd go to heaven in afterlife, or something like that, or have a good afterlife, because it's all metaphorical, and I don't want to get into religious arguments here, even though I am a Lutheran myself, but uh, even though, if you believe in any sort of afterlife, that would kind of, mis that would kind of delay your building of like heaven on earth under communism right now, so that was kind of harmful because you could only believe in one ideology there. That was very true, and it's a very dark, dark moment in our history because the religious people were held. And by the way, there are also those among the poor. And if you had someone deeply religious in your family, like my grandmother, uh, you couldn't go to university unless you had very, very good grades because you would be forced to fail in your entry exams. Because back then in Soviet Union, we had like. Both, you know, you had exams to finish your school, and you had entry exams in university as two separate things. And uh, my grandmother only became, a, from my father's side, only became a doctor because she finished uh, her high school with a gold medal. Yeah, it actually used to give gold and silver medals to those people who excelled in studies in, in high school. And as she was the daughter of a pastor, 
then she could only get into university because she had such a great, so great marks because you know she was she was blacklisted back then. It, it's one of the really real persecutions there, and it's kind of it kind of surprises me because I've I've seen a lot of American people out there still stating that you know a lot of the suppression that Soviets did was just you know exaggerations and. But then you go and ask people in Ukraine about the Golodomor and all these all these terrible things about gulags, which I've made my last episodes about. And then you're like, yeah, you know, uh, not really. Because I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting about the Red Scare period, because in that time, as far as I know of, because of my education, for example, a lot of French philosophers were in the Communist Party, and communists were kind of popular in Europe. And right now, a lot of people, like, like they, they let them go. They let them go, even though Sartre acknowledged that sure there were these gulags and deportations of the Soviet Union, and he was very pro-communist, but he just chose to ignore them because that didn't further his agenda, so he was very communistic. And he gets away scot-free, while Heidegger, who essentially had to join the Nazi party to keep being the dean of, of his faculty there, he's very much, you know, called a bad person because he didn't rebel against the Nazis. And, you know, that, that seems kind of, you know, unequal there and unjust, so to speak, from my end, because some people might, might yell at me, but I, I firmly do believe that commies were just as bad as the Nazis, just for different sorts of, different kinds of people, so to speak. Sometimes they overlap. Cause, I'm, you know, I certainly agree Heidegger gets a lot more flack for being a Nazi than any of the communist sympathizer existentialists. He probably also is more in fashion than Sartre is at the moment in academic philosophy in America, too, though, so... True. Oh, yeah. And if you have any final final words here, because I would like to wrap this this one up, uh, please feel free to give any final comments to our listeners. And thank you, listeners, for being here. And I always like these communications between uh, you guys over there on the other side of the pond, so to speak, uh, and us here. But yeah, if you have any final comments on Soviet Union, feel free to tell them. And of course, don't forget to plug your show to your heart's desire. <laughs> plug away. Plug away. Yeah. Come on. No, 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 start, start with a comment first, then plug. <laughs> Anything else? I don't think so. It's been fascinating. Yeah, yeah. this is I've, this has really been interesting. Yeah, Thanks. Right. I mean, now yeah. I have... Wow. Okay, yes. well, yeah, thanks for having us on yeah, this no, show. Yeah. It's been Seriously. really fun. Everybody, uh, thanks for listening. Check us out at deadideas.net, our podcast. Uh, and uh, thank you to the Eastern Border. You are You have an awesome show. Yeah. Thank you for the idea that if my current schooling doesn't work out, I can get it for free in Latvia. <laughs> well, at least you know the drinks are cheap there. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm down. About <laughs> 10 oh. inches of snow in November. Oh, so. come on. We're from Minnesota. We're used yeah, to Yeah, we usually only have three. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, uh, thank you guys for, for being here. And, uh, yeah, to the listeners, see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.